Well, hi, everybody. Welcome. I'm going to add my welcome to Janet. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in New York, and I'm really happy to be here tonight. And thank you so much for that beautiful heartfelt prayer. I love, you know, um, before I get started, I, you know, this whole program is about finding a relationship with God and um, scripted prayers are beautiful. Some people are really, you know, wonderful writers and it's awesome to have benefit of their prayers. Um, but I know in order to have a relationship, the prayer really has to come from my heart. And so, although I might read a scripted prayer and feel it deep, I think there's something really beautiful about sharing your own prayer. So right in the moment, thank you, Julian. Um, so tonight I'm gonna talk about um, a topic which is um, relationship ideals. And um, it's, it's really um, a perfect um, in between five and six, because um, after step, you know, step four, we identify our, um, the weak items, you know, in us, our defects, the things that are not going right, our resentments, our fears, right, um, our harms. And in five, we reveal them to another person, and we get some more information, we really get some we begin to see it from a different angle. We begin to sort of see that um, that these are things we want to be rid of. And now, before we can take step six, the big book actually uh, talks to us about crafting our sex ideal. And we're also told in the big book that we treat sex like any other problem. So that tells me that I, you know, I would benefit from having ideals in um, all my relationships and not just my, you know, sexual relationships, but all relationships. And so um, for this talk, what I did was I really, I went through the book um, and I started looking for what are the ideals, not my ideals, but the ideals, you know, I'm a, I'm a studier of the book, of the text, and that's really where I've, um, try to get my information from as much as possible, not as much from my, my brain, which my ideals in the past have been what's good for me, right? But the book sort of tells me, okay, as an ex-problem drinker, as an ex-problem eater, what are the ideal ways that I should behave and live? And so these come straight from the book. And I think Trisha will share it, um, the, the kind of the framework where I got these from, with the page numbers and the passages. And, and I, you know, I utilize this to kind of craft my own ideal. Like how can I take these things that the book tells me and now apply that to my own living experience? Um, and so that's what I hope to kind of share with you tonight, give you some examples and go through the text um, um, and hopefully, you know, um, spark you to maybe do the same to look a bit the same at your own at your own ideals so what are ideals right if we're going to talk about what an ideal is um you know doesn't an ideal have something to do with you know with perfection with the impossible the unattainable and am i really supposed to become perfect like these are the questions people ask like isn't an ideal 
a perfection, you know, idea. And isn't perfectionism a flaw? Isn't that a problem? Um, and it's a typical, you know, many of us have actually come here in the bondage of not just food, but of this perfectionistic mindset. And so when we read about ideals, there's a part of me that's like, uh, I don't know if that's supposed to be so good, right? Is that really supposed to be so good? So page 68 in the AA 12 and 12 answers this question. It says, many will at once ask, how can we accept the entire implication of step six? Why? That is perfection. This sounds like a hard question, but practically speaking, it isn't. Only step one, where we made the 100% admission we were powerless over alcohol can be practiced with absolute perfection. The remaining 11 steps state perfect ideals. They are goals towards which we look and the measuring sticks by which we estimate our progress. The only urgent is that we make a beginning and keep trying. So, you know, um, while I don't always live in agreement with my ideals, I mean, that's the truth. I don't always live in agreement with them. It's the target I'm aiming for. It's like the perfect target. And I'm looking to get, you know, the bullseye. And I know that I'm not but I'm just going to keep aiming for it. You know, I am imperfect, but I'm actually encouraged to seek it, to seek perfection, to seek to improve. Um, I'm directed to grow along spiritual lines, to grow towards spiritual lines. And somebody shared with me today, actually a sponsor shared with me today that she, after hearing this, she thought, you know, it kind of made her think about the North Star. And that if she wants to travel north, she's going to head towards the star. She knows she's not going to land on the star, right? That's the impossible. But she's heading towards that direction. And that's what I like to think about my ideals. I'm heading towards this direction. So doctor's opinion, XVIII, says frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So the doctor's opinion certainly has a lot to say about food and alcohol and allergy and um, and it's oftentimes where we start, right? We start looking at the doctor's opinion and there's no doubt for, for compulsive overeaters and alcoholics and addicts that it's super important information to understand what it means to have an allergy, right? And so to understand what it means to be abstinent, to understand how we have to sort of, you know, mold our lives and work our lives around this notion of perfection with the food. That is the truth. We actually are supposed to really, step one is put the food, to, right, is to put it down. But there's a lot more in this chapter, or really this pre-chapter, because it's not actually a chapter, it's, the, it's a preface to it. And the doctor's opinion, I also found out, you know, that food was never my real problem. That's not my real problem. 
my actual problem was a problem I had with living. I had a living problem. I had ideals that were grounded in me. That was my problem. That I was living in a way where I had a set of ideals that were grounded right in me and what I wanted. And, you know, I've also discovered, you know, from the doctor's opinion and, and through this work that I have a personality disorder. That's really, that's part of this disease. We have personality disorders. And, you know, like some people are like, what? Don't tell me that. Well, you know, um, we're actually told, you know, aren't we all here because we required a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from compulsive eating. So if I require a personality change, then it's safe to say that I've got a personality that's bringing me to ruin. I've got a personality that's not working and I needed my life to be recreated. That's what that, that's what that little paragraph says that in order for us to recreate our lives. So I need a life to be recreated. I need a new life. And I need my ideals to be grounded in something that was bigger than me. In Bill's story, you know, when Abby comes and Bill sees the evidence of someone who's got ideals grounded in something bigger than himself, it says here, I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped new soil. And, you know, what does that mean, this idea of his roots grasping new soil? Um, what I think is that my roots, you know, our roots are the things that keep us in place. And they're the things that, um, that we use to take in nourishment. They're the things that support us to give us structure. And my old soil, right? The old soil was soil that was polluted and corrupted. That's what my roots were grounded in. They were grounded in my old soil. And my roots were being fed and supported by fear, by selfishness, by getting what I wanted and living according to what I felt right? That's what was being taken in. And so what's the new soil, right? If that's no longer serving me, my new soil is soil that's truly able to support me, right? It's power greater than myself. My loving creator is my new soil and my new set of spiritual principles. Those are the things that support me. Those are the things that give me structure. Those are the things that take in nourishment for me, right? And, you know, I think too, it's an important aspect because when we start working on recovery, I think what I think like to think about it, it's sort of like our roots get removed from that old soil and it's a process. And there's a period of time when I think about these roots, I'm shaking off the old soil and I got nothing. I'm dangling. I'm in a very vulnerable state, right? Which is why, you know, we, it's always suggested to surround yourself with recovery, surround yourself with the message, surround yourself with fellowship, with outreach calls, with lots of meetings, with this idea of almost this hospitalization, not a real, not necessarily a treatment center, but this model of being kind of insulated 
you know, um, and protective. And why? Because we're in a vulnerable state and we're in the process of putting our roots into some new soil. So, and there's a solution on page 19 through 20. It says, of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters, medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are, from their very nature, controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve, achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. So we're getting already a list of what our ideals are and our ideals as ex-problem drinkers. Number one, it says that we avoid controversy. Two, we're not contentious or argumentative. Three, we're tolerant of others' shortcomings. Four, we're respectful of others' viewpoints and opinions. Five, we're useful to others. And six, constantly thinking how we can meet their needs. So I don't jump into political arguments. Like if those, these are my ideals, it means that I'm not having political arguments with people because that's controversial. Um, I, as much as possible, I refrain from getting involved in workplace drama. You know, I'm not jumping on the bandwagon when people have disputes, taking sides and getting involved and he said and she said and, you know, getting all in there. I'm actually told to be a peacemaker. I'm supposed to seek to make peace. And, you know, how do I do that? I, as much as possible, I let the rumor die with me. When there's a rumor, I try to let it die with me and not to repeat it. Now, remember, this is an ideal. Am I always, you know, able to refrain from that? No, but I make amends. I make amends when I, when I live outside my ideals. Um, you know, when family members are fired up over something and I've shared this, like I'm a part of a very big, I have a huge family, very big, very opinionated, um, group of people. And I am one of them, right? We all have an opinion in my family. We all think our opinion needs to be heard, you know, and discussed. Um, but I really try more and more to stay quiet and positive. When there's a debate, when there's a discussion going on, that's not really necessary for me to jump in. I try to stay quiet. And, you know, what I see is that the people I love are imperfect, just like me. They make mistakes. And one of my defects, you know, has been that I have an incredibly analytical eagle eye that finds the mistakes of others and sees them, I'd say like neon signs. 
I can see the mistakes of the people I love, like great big neon signs with arrows pointing, you know, like um, get angry here, you know? Um, and I, rather than point it out, other people's mistakes or try to change them or talk about it with others, I try to stay quiet, right? Um, and because doing those other things, it's not tolerant of their shortcomings. If I'm pointing out other people's shortcomings, well, I'm certainly not, that's launching, <laughs> certainly not tolerant of their shortcomings. Um, and, you know, so like, for example, my really just happened the other day too. It happens habitually. My husband gets into um, arguments with his mom political arguments. They have differing political views. My husband and I see things one way, his mother sees things another, and he'll get into fights with her on the phone, all fueled up. And, you know, sometimes he'll tell me something that his mom said that bothered him. And in the past, I would add into this discussion with him, like privately, I would be like, I can't believe she said that, you know, doesn't she see blah, 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 blah. And like, why can't I do that? Why can't I add? Why is that outside my ideals? Well, it's not respectful of her views and her perspective, and it's not useful. It's not useful to her, and it's not useful to my husband because it's actually much kinder towards him to not agree, not to, you know, lie and tell him that, you know, I think he's wrong, but just to have no opinion, to be quiet, to just let him say what he needs to say, not try to school him into making him see her side, not try to nothing, just to be quiet about it. Um, and because that's the kindest thing to do because it's his mother. Like after all, this is his mother. And when I'd say God is molding my ideals, I believe in a God that wants sons and mothers to love one another. I think that's, a, that's an ideal that I can say is aligned with how I perceive God, with the way that I think God feels. Um, and I think God delights in peaceful family relations. I feel like that's aligned with my ideals. So if my ideals are grounded in myself, I might use those moments to trash talk a family member as a way of getting closer to my husband. I've done that. You know, we'll both together, we'll talk about someone in his family or my family. And somehow now we feel really close and connected. Um, and someone explained to me one time that that's actually called cheap intimacy. It's not true intimacy. It's feeling intimate at the expense of another person. Um, and, you know, so at work, for example, why can't I point out to colleagues that there are lots of things wrong with our current administration? Like to sit and talk together and kind of, you know, I don't know, um, vent together. Like, why is that a problem? You know, why can't I talk about my employer or the education department? Um, because it sours morale, because it brings people down and it pollutes the workplace, right? And it makes the workplace an unpleasant place. And so rather than criticize, I'm looking for how I can be helpful and useful. 
And what strikes me is the use of the word here. It says constantly, constantly thinking of others, not occasionally, not even frequently. It actually says constantly. So we're not promised more leisure time or time to pursue our interests and desires. My ideals can't be shaped around me and my desires. Um, let's look and see what other characteristics help me shape, uh, shape my ideals. And in Dr. Bob's Nightmare on page 180, it says, it is a most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. My health is good and I've regained my self-respect and the respect of my colleagues. My home life is ideal and my business is as good as can be expected in these uncertain times. I laugh when I read that because every, it seems like everybody always finds whatever times they are uncertain. I think that's a constant, right? That must be what can be certain is that there's always uncertainty in our times. As this goes back to a period and I would say, you know, people are saying today, oh, these are such uncertain times. Well, they were saying it back then too, right? So that just sort of made me smile. But, you know, what does Dr. Bob have to say about an ideal? Well, if we look at what attracted him and his wife to the people in the Oxford group, we can learn something about what he saw as ideal. And it says here that at the time of the beer experiment, I was thrown in with a crowd of people who attracted me because of their seemingly poise, health, and happiness. They spoke with great freedom from embarrassment, which I could never do. And they seemed very much at ease on all occasions and appeared very healthy. More than these attributes, they seemed to be happy. So it was clear that he saw one poise, two health, three happiness, and four freedom from embarrassment. Five at ease on all occasions. And these are the byproducts of living in agreement with God's will. So, you know, and you look up poise, means being comfortable in your own skin. And people who have poise, I would say they learn from their mistakes and they apologize if necessary and they move forward. They don't get rattled by it. They look people in the eye. They exhibit humility. They exhibit confidence. They can hold their heads up. They're not cocky. They're not arrogant. A poised person doesn't easily lose their cool. They're patient. I like to think that a poised person is a lifelong learner, comfortable with making mistakes and learning from it, continuing to grow and accept new ideas and new perspectives. So when creating my ideals, I look to live with poise. It makes me think you know, of the men and women that I've known in the Blooms of Overeaters Anonymous, the ones who did such a good job of carrying the message to me. They drew me in because they were bright-eyed, quiet, sane. They weren't evangelists and they weren't reformers. And after our fifth step too, we begin to get some of these qualities that a poised person has. 
I can easily recognize when I'm not exhibiting poise. After work, you know, um, sometimes I would come home or even in the morning I wake up and none of the things that I expect to be done are done by my family members. Like I wake up in the morning and there's a sink full of dishes and I'm like, ah, when I went to bed, that sink was empty. And anybody who knows me, that's my pet peeve. That just seems to be the thing that can rattle my chains. And, you know, um, so I come home or I wake up in the morning and those things are not done. And I don't always respond in a quiet, sane way. I definitely can act like a reformer and I lose my cool. And it's not a pretty moment. You know, it's not a pretty moment in the life of Melissa C. And, um, and, and here's the thing, it never actually gets me the thing that I want, right? The thing that I actually wanted in the first place, which for me, this idea of this clean sink or the clean kitchen is this image I have of a peaceful home, of like a kind of orderly, calm, comfortable, peaceful home. But I'm throwing a temper tantrum and stamping <laughs> and like, putting the dishes away with a clank, you know, and slamming the, the cupboards. Um, there's nothing peaceful about that. I'm actually not getting what I was setting out to get. Um, and I'm not living in agreement with my ideals as a mom or a wife. On page 69 in How It Works, it says, we do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? We reviewed our own conduct over the past years. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. So according to our ideals, I can't be selfish. We have to think of others first. I can't be dishonest. I have to be truthful. And three, I can't be inconsiderate. I have to be considerate. I have to consider other people. And we review the way we behave and our new ideal can't arouse jealousy. So if we're not going to arouse jealousy, we're not bragging or discussing things that you know another person is longing for. Be compassionate, right? Think about other people before you just, you know, for myself, before I start talking about myself and saying things, right? Um, two, you know, make people suspicious. Encourage people to not trust me. And basically, you know, that means like I'm being untrustworthy, dishonest, two-faced. And if I'm not those things, then I'm encouraging trust, right? Three, cause bitterness. So making people angry and disappointed because they were treated unfairly. That's how we cause bitterness. And, you know, and we're told don't cause bitterness, right? And if we're not causing bitterness, it means that we're encouraging delight and warmth, right? Page 69, in my relationships, I'm compassionate. I'm to be compassionate, honest, and fair. And in the second paragraph on page 69, it says, in this way, 
we tried to shape a safe and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? So in every relationship, every relationship, mom, wife, employee, colleague, neighbor, sponsor, etc. I'm cautioned, I'm warned not, excuse me, not to be selfish. And you know, in our way of life, selfish isn't just wanting more than our fair share in that old sense of the word, word. but selfish actually means, um, no, it's got a lot of definitions. One, wanting others to follow my script, having a script and expecting them to follow it. We call that selfish. Um, having this idea, like saying they should, dot, dot, dot. In my mind, when I'm coming at people with they should, there's a selfishness there, right? Um, three, not seeing others' point of view, believing that my perspective is a fact. When I step into a relationship and I've got a perspective and I, and I like hold tight to it, like it's factual, I'm actually caution that I'm being selfish in this relationship. Um, four, wanting things my way. It must go my way. It must go my way. Five, wanting special treatment. And that's something that I've been guilty of. You know, I, I like special treatment. I think a lot of us do. Um, and there's nothing wrong with liking special treatment. I mean, I think that's kind of human. Most people like it, but expecting it, demanding it, right? Not being happy unless I get it. That's a problem for me, right? Six, too concerned with me, right? Selfishness means I'm just too concerned with me. By the way, even when I'm worried what others are thinking about me, that's being concerned about me, right? I'm worried what you're thinking about me. Again, I'm thinking about me. That's selfish. And seven, wanting to look good wanting to look good and be liked. Um, so we ask God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. And we remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised or loathed. And um, so... You know, I look at it like this, all of my attractive powers and my talents and gifts, anything that I come by naturally are God-given, you know, and for some people it's intelligence or artistic gifts or people skills. Some people have really good like people skills or athletic abilities. Um, anything that makes us special is God-given and therefore good and not to be used lightly or selfishly. And, you know, um, God will use these gifts and we must allow him to mold us, to take our gifts and mold us. And I think, you know, one of the most amazing things is how so many of our troubling characteristics become reshaped into the ones that are beneficial if they're put to good use. If we let God mold us, if we allow God to do the molding, he takes our natural talents and abilities and actually repurposes it and uses it for good. Um, 
In step three, we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And in step seven, we give him everything good and bad, right? So we give it all and we allow God to decide what's good and what's bad and to reshape it and get rid of the things that do not serve anymore, right? Page 69, the third paragraph, whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. So at this point, it's safe to say when we are in our, our ideals, the food's down. And it's been down for a good chunk of time, usually, right? We have a clear idea of what our defects are, or at least what our grosser handicaps are. We begin to feel more and more God-directed. And around this time, we get, we're getting more aware of when we're not living in agreement with our moral code. And I would say this is God shaping my ideals. Nobody should specifically tell you what your ideals are, right? That's not for a sponsor to do. It's not for a fellow to do. But we know them. Here's the thing, because deep down inside, we've got this fundamental idea of God. It's in there. We know our ideals. In fact, I'd say it's always been there. I didn't suddenly realize that I had a set of morals. I suddenly realized that I could live in agreement with my morals. My morals have been there. They've been there a very long time. Um, you know, I would say it's that quiet voice inside us. We've always heard it, always. Um, I can see it. You know, I see my second graders, they have it. They've got, I can tell by their facial expression when they do something they know is wrong. Sometimes they try to hide it. You know, it's the shame it's written. It's that their expression. You could see it in their face because they know it. They get a funny look on their faces when they know that they're not doing something that's right. And I would say for us, you know, we use the substance to blot out that which we didn't want to see, that which we did not want to hear. And, you know, I would say when we're trying to hide it from others, it's not always that we fear the outside consequences, but it's because we can hear that quiet voice of God inside of us. We call it our conscience. And now everyone's is different, but whatever yours turns out to be, you need to be willing. You need to be willing to grow towards it. So everybody here may have a different set of ideals, but when you know what you're supposed to do, we're, we're told we have to start living in agreement with it. And when we don't, we need to make amends. And not just to say we're sorry, not just to say I'm sorry, but to fix it, to change, right? Do it differently. And remember that willing doesn't mean wanting, but it means you do it anyway, right? So I don't often want to do these things or not do these things, but if I'm willing, I will do it anyway. And in other words, we're told we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, we ask God what she would do about each specific matter. The right answers will come if we want it. God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with persons is often desirable, 
but we let God be our final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. So we treat all our problems the same way. And that's amazing news to me. You really don't need a different set of directions for different problems. When we have a problem, we ask God what to do. We can seek counsel with another person, but we let God be the final judge, not people. And this tells me as a sponsor and as a co-fellow that I'm not supposed to pass judgment on others. That's God's job. That's not my job. So what do I avoid? What am I told to avoid? Hysterical thinking and hysterical advice, both receiving it and giving it to. So when someone comes to me with a problem, an oppressing issue, I am really to tell them to bring it to God. I must, because otherwise I'm doling out advice and we're cautioned here not to do that. Page 70 says, suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only half true. It depends on us and on our motives. If we're sorry for what we've done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and we have learned our lesson. If we're not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. I'm like, holy, there's a real warning, right? Here's a real warning. Um, if you know what God's ideals are for you and you don't care and you're not sorry, and you continue to do what you want because you want it, you're told here, you're going to eat, you're going to drink. It's, it's actually a promise. So if I make a mistake and I don't live according to my God-molded ideas, am I automatically going to go back to eating? I have to check my motives. <laughs> am I really sorry? And do I want to really do better? Or am I hoping to get away with something? I can't deliberately hurt someone and stay sober even if I think they deserve it, right? Remember, it's not my job to school people, to punish people, to give people consequences. You know, and if I get back to that situation where I wake up in the morning and none of the household chores are done. Now, I was technically right because they are supposed to do, my son's supposed to take out the garbage. That is his job. He was not supposed to leave, right? His dishes in the sink. He ate it. He cooked it. He ate it. He's a grown boy. He should be able to put them away. But me having a temper tantrum is not living in agreement with my ideas. So I could technically be right, but I still have to make amends for behaving the way that I behaved. And, and I do. I do. When I throw a temper tantrum um, and I don't behave the right way, risking my recovery and, and my life. And what I'm saying is in that moment, I am saying that the clean house that I want is worth dying over. And that sounds crazy, right? That my very life is worth risking the garbage being taken out. 
you know, another thing that I absolutely cannot do if I plan on staying recovered and protected is I can't lie. Why? You know, I, I like what Janet says. It's because it's like putting a do not enter sign on my forehead, telling God to keep out. And I think when I lie, what I'm really saying to God is I don't trust you. I have no trust in you. I think, you know, um, I know better. I've got a plan. I'm the employer and you work for me, God. And basically, I tell God, I don't require your help. Get out of my way. I got it. And, um, you know, and I think about God, you know, as the best, most skillful teacher with a perfect lesson plan that's differentiated for each and every one of us. And when I lie, I'm saying to God, I don't need to learn anything new today. And so God allows me to decide for myself. It's called free will, right? And, um, and it doesn't mean that I'm not going to learn the lesson. I'm just not going to learn it today, right? And I'm not going to learn it in the easiest way possible. Page 70 to paragraph two, it says to sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal for guidance in each questionable situation for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, if anything is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. And this takes us out of ourselves. So in all my relationships, I pray for the right model, help and clarity when I'm unsure and confused, for rational and stable thinking and for the strength, for God's power to do what is right. And if a situation is difficult and overly tempting, I throw myself into being of service. I focus on someone else's needs and I make that my project. I have to get out of myself. You know, we're also told another one of our ideals is we have to be free of anger. And it says so in how it works. We have to be free of anger. That anger is the dubious luxury of normal men. But for us, it's poison. And that's a phrase I turn to a lot because it reminds me that as an ex-problem eater, I have a very unique set of directions. And it's very different from the directions that normal people have. I cannot defend and support my side and my position. In fact, I have to actually divorce. It says divorce myself, separate, disconnect, turn away, abandon, distance, split, detach myself from that kind of thinking. And into action, it says we should be sensible tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't fall before anyone. And what this tells me is that I may be putting other people's needs ahead of my own, but ahead means my needs will still be considered. Just not first. I just don't get to be first. You know, I like to think, you know, I'm a child of my creator. And I believe it's disrespectful to God to be putting myself in a position where I'm courting humiliation, pain, and abuse. 
we're not servile. We are of service to God and he directs us to who and how we're to help, but we're not at the beck and call of other people. We're not at the beck and call of our sponsors. We're not at the beck and call of our sponsees. I'm not at the beck and call of my family, of fellows, of any other human being, right? God is my master, no human. I don't believe God relieved me of the bondage of food to be anyone's doormat. My ideals have to have healthy boundaries in there too. And those of us that have been people pleasers have actually, I would say I haven't been as kind as I like to think I am. Because actually what I've been using, um, when I'm a people pleaser, I'm using other people because I'm not really concerned with their happiness and their well-being. What I don't like is how I feel when I think they're not happy with me. And so I'm using them to feel better. When I try to make them like me or pleased with me, it's because I want to feel better by that. Um, and, you know, I would say that I buy myself comfort by making sure you're happy. I'm going to get comfortable if you're happy. And that's a pretty unkind thing to do. To make someone else responsible for your happiness is actually a burden, right? To walk around trying to please other people so you feel good, it's, it's actually putting a burden on them. So, you know, um, if I get back to that housework example, in a calm demeanor, I can discuss what needs to get done calmly. I can remind my family members that we're a family and that we all have to pitch in. It's really unfair, you know, to put it on one person. And I can be quiet, sane, and poised. And it's more effective. When I approach people from that way, it's far more, more effective. Now, it also may mean that um, sometimes I take the garbage out myself. Sometimes I do. But it also means that sometimes there's a consequence that's going to follow. And if the things are not done. And I might sometimes have to allow natural consequences to be the great instructor, you know, and stand by and allow other people to feel uncomfortable. Page 84, it says our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And I think about the St. Francis prayer. And sometimes it's referred to the 11-step prayer. My function, my job is to be understanding, not understood. Helpful, useful, and valuable. And then the last thing I really want to talk about is love and tolerance, we're told, is our code. That's our code. And that's my favorite line of all. That's my ideal. That love and tolerance of others is my code. My code is my policy, my protocol. You know, I would say it's my SOP. In business, there's the SOP, which is the standard operating procedure. So if you notice, my code is not justice and it's not fairness for Melissa. Because the truth is, I was never really concerned with justice and fairness, not when it was in my favor. Only when it wasn't in my favor would I be, you know, complaining that this isn't fair. But when it was in my favor, I had no problem. So justice and fairness isn't my code, but love and tolerance is. And, um, and the idea of tolerance means that I am 
not just going to stomach other people like, Ugh, I have to tolerate them, but it means that I'm going to ask for God to increase my sense, my, to, to diminish my sensitivity and increase my ability to withstand situations that are not my liking. And I would say it's to get a thicker skin. And, um, and I, you know, I know there's some other ideals there and I just, you know, I want to say that these things take time, you know, in order to live in agreement with my ideals, it means that I'm not going to fight with other people and that I'm also going to be patient with themselves and with others. And, you know, now that I'm living free from food, I can't expect perfection in my home just because I'm doing better. I can't expect perfection in me. You know, with my loved ones and with myself, I need to be patient. Um, I need to remember that these are ideals. They're the perfect model. And although I can strive for the target, I often miss the one. And with that, I'll pass.